Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Job, the Old Testament book of Job. We were in Esther for two weeks, and now Job, which is a little bit to the right, a few books to the right, and we consider this, in some ways, most mysterious of books, but one of the greatest books, in my opinion, in the Old Testament. And so I'm going to read the first five verses. Let us hear now the word of the Lord is inspired by His Spirit. Job 1, 1 to 5, we're going to be looking at actually the first two chapters. I'm going to read sort of each scene as it unfolds. Excuse me. Word of the Lord, as inspired by His Spirit. There was a man in the land of Uz, his name was Job. And that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. <clears throat> Excuse me. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord, sacred scripture will endure forever. Let's pray together one more time. God in heaven, I pray as I almost always do, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, O oh God, our rock and our redeemer, that as we unpack Job, that we would be strengthened in our faith about the mysteries of life in a fallen world and the kind of world we live in, Lord, and how we're called to live in it. And how we understand evil and suffering. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to see great things from your word. To see your glory in this man's suffering these next three weeks. Oh God, do it. Do it in us and work through us for your own glory. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. <clears throat> so what do we do with Job? Now we've not gotten to the juicy part yet. We just introduced Job. We're going to get there. What do we do with Job and the story of Job? Well, lots of things have been done with Job throughout the history of the church. One of the best known in the past probably 40 or so years was Rabbi Harold Kushner, thank you, who wrote a book in 1981, thank you, I am old enough to remember this, being a New York Times bestseller, called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. Now that would get your attention, right? It gets my attention, When Bad Things Happen to Good People people, 1981, sold 4 million copies and was on the New York Times bestseller list for months and months and months, and still sells, even though it's a little outdated. In that book, Rabbi Kushner considered whether God is good 
and whether we can trust him and whether he is all-powerful or some of those things are lacking in God. And it was prompted by his three-year-old son who was diagnosed with a degenerative disease and he would die by the time he was a teenager. And Rabbi Kushner was considering what do we think about that? What do we do with that? And what do we think about God? Is God able to change that diagnosis? Is he able to step in and, and solve the problem of evil? Or is he unable? Is he, does he lack the power? Does he have the desire to do it? The desire to good things, to do good things, but does he lack the power to do it? His conclusion was this. Yes, God is loving, that's no surprise, and God is loving, of course. We just sung about God's love, right? We celebrate God's love in Christ every Sunday here at Christ Fellowship. We revel in that. We wouldn't be here if not for God's love. But he concluded that, yes, God is loving. He's interested in helping us, but he's not powerful enough to stop every instance of evil. God is all-knowing and God is all-loving, but God is not all-powerful. And so we think that's terrible, right? Really and truly, this is the question, this so-called problem of evil and suffering in this world. It's a problem that every one of us asks. In fact, now my generation growing up in church, we ask the question, is the Bible true? Is this true? That's what I ask in college. But what young people are asking now, not is so much is it true, but is it good? Is God good? That's a valid question, isn't it? Not is it true so much, yeah, that's still asked, but is it good? And so, Rabbi Kushner and hundreds of theologians throughout the history of the church and pastors have asked this existential question, which Job deals with, which is as old as time. We've asked it ourselves. Maybe you're asking it today. If you are, you're in a good place. I'm glad you're here. And it's why do bad things happen to good people? Make of that statement. Why do bad things happen to good people? I'm a Christian. I walk with the Lord. I go to church every Sunday. Why do bad things still happen to me? Why does God just smile on me and make my life kind of like a feather bed? And when things happen, is there a purpose behind it? Or is it just kind of dumb luck? Is there any purpose behind it? Is it merely random? Is it ordered? Is it random? It seems chaotic and ordered and random. Is it random? Or is God sovereign? Is there, a, is there an intelligent hand, a loving hand behind it guiding every bit of it? Or is it just kind of the accidental collision of, of atoms and molecules and subatomic particles? You know, you've asked that. We all have, haven't we? This is the age-old question. And how does God relate to this? Did this happen to me merely because I was in the wrong place at the wrong time? I made bad decisions? We know, I hope, that it's very easy to trust God when the sun is shining in life. When it's all going well, when the kids are minding, when the bank account is full, when work, there's plenty of work, when our political candidate's in office, our football team is winning. Man, the Georgia Bulldogs are number one right now. Man, life is good, right? When it's good, it's easy to be a Christian. Yeah, that makes it easy for me to be a Christian. Georgia's number one, right? That'll be Alabama next week. Then I'll increase my faith. But I digress. <laughs> we shall see. 
it's easy, isn't it, when it's going well? And so, you know, we give the world the idea that we're just kind of, as I said last week, kind of zippity-doo-dah, zippity-yay, my oh my, what a wonderful day. That's Christianity. But that's not the Christianity of the Bible. That's not the Christianity of Job. It's a corrective, isn't it? Because what happens when our three-year-old is diagnosed with leukemia? What then? What about when our best friend commits suicide? What about that? What do we make of God then? What, is our, what happens to our Christianity then? What about when we learn that our spouse has stage four cancer? Last week she seemed healthy. Now she's got three months to live. What about then? Then what? What about God? Is he good? Do you trust him? Or was it just when the sun was shining and now you don't know? What about when your pastor for many years commits adultery? We trusted him. He preached to us. He, he was by our bedside and now he's had a girlfriend for five years. Then what? What do we do with life in a fallen world and a God who claims to be holy and righteous and good and all-powerful? Because the Bible says he is all-powerful. He is omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. He's all those things, right? He's omnipotent. Rabbi Kushner says, no, he's not all-powerful. Scripture says, no, he's all-powerful. What do we do with this? These are great questions, right? Job helps us with this. That's why this is so vitally important. And why I would argue this is sort of the centerpiece, these next three sermons, these three weeks in this series on God's providence. Because this is where we get right down to the brass tacks, the nub. Esther was great. Moses was great. Joseph, great. This, oh yeah, this is meat and potatoes right here. We live, isn't it? We live in this world. We live with diagnosis of leukemia. We live in this world where pastors commit adultery. We live in this world where people commit suicide. And we live with the claims of Scripture. And by God's grace, we have the story of Job. We're going to look at Job in three sermons. One each on the, each of the central characters. Job this week, Satan next week. What about Satan and evil and uh, the demons? What do we do with that and God's sovereignty? Is he sovereign over that? We're going to not mention Satan much today, not talk a lot about him, but get more depth. And then God, the last four chapters of Job. Who is God? We're going to look at that because this strikes at the very character of God. Now, a Scottish Presbyterian named George Hutchinson preached 316 sermons on the book of Job. Joseph Carroll in London preached, took 23 years to preach through 424 sermons on Job, verse by verse, 23 years. And then at the end, here's what he said, I have not formed a clear understanding of some of the passages. He speaks to the depth of Job. So I know good and well, and some of you are Bible scholars here, and I know you're thinking, you're going to do this, this hillbilly preacher of ours is going to do Job in three weeks? Yes, he is. <laughs> We're all going to look at every bit of Job. Just really three kind of character sketches of Job, of Job and Satan and God, the actors, the main actors in this drama, which is a microcosm of our lives every day, even though we will never suffer as Job did, likely. But it brings home the fundamental question as to our suffering when it comes home. Why? We want to know why, don't we? Why God? Why me? Why now? Why this way? We've all asked it. Why this way? These are philosophical and theological issues, right? But they're, it's where the rubber meets the road. What is the relationship between suffering and sin, between good and evil, and a good God who claims to be sovereign over all? Is he sovereign and unwilling to stop suffering, or is he willing and not sovereign? Those are the choices we have. The question of theodicy, if you want a $5 or $10 theology term, that's it. It's the justification of the ways of God. 
Is he good? Is he just? And can we trust him? I want you to leave here and today and next Sunday and next Sunday trusting God. Absolute, unshakable confidence in the God of Job. That's what I'm after. I'm just going to tell you right up front. So if you've been tuned out these last few weeks in Providence, tune back in. Okay, these next three weeks, because this is good stuff. It's important, and it's, it's, it's very, a very shaking, a very shattering story. So we meet Job here in the first five verses, the perfect and upright man, or a, a blameless and upright man. The old King James, which I grew up on, says he's a perfect and upright man. And we're told four things about Job. Just a quick character sketch here. And this is very important because this sets the stage for the rest of the book. This is a good man. This is Rabbi Kushner's question, right? A good man who's going to go through a good amount of suffering, the likes of which we've never probably known or certainly experienced. First, we learn about his integrity. He was blameless. That does not mean he was sinlessly perfect. There are no people like that in this world, only Jesus, the Christ. This word speaks of his genuineness, his authenticity. Job is no hypocrite. What you see is what you get with Job. He's not one person at church and another person at home. That's not Job. When you hear his words and watch his deeds, you get an accurate reflection of what's going on in his heart. Job looked godly because Job was godly. It's easy to come to church and look godly, right? For just, you know, two hours, we can fake it on Sunday morning. You know, we can fake it till we make it, right? Job was the same person all the time. That's what this speaks of. He was blameless. We would do well to have God say this about us, wouldn't we? That we look godly because we are godly. It was integrity. Secondly, his treatment of others. He was upright. In his human relations, he was a man who could be trusted. He would not double-cross you. He was a straight dealer. I like people like that. You like straight dealers? I like straight dealers. I pray God makes me a straight dealer because... Want to, want to cut it to you straight, right? We learn also about his religion. His faith was marked by what I might call, what you might call a humble piety. He feared God and turned away from evil. Now, obviously, we don't know how much he knew about God, but he had a reverence, he had a holy fear that led him to hate sin and turn away from sinfulness. Later in the book, we learn that Job believed God was both sovereign and just, fair. Unlike Rabbi Kushner, Job's going to argue, and we're going to see this here in just these two chapters, that he is both sovereign and just. And I'm going to tell you, I believe in this church, we confess and believe that God is sovereign, meticulously so. Every molecule and atom and subatomic particle does his bidding, and he is just. He is good. Then what do we make of suffering? That's what we're dealing with here. Finally, we learn of his morality. Christopher Ash, one of my friends, an incredibly good commentary on Job, puts it this way. He said, as he walked life's path, Job resolutely stayed on the straight and upright path and turned away from the crooked ways of sin. Turn away from sin is the very essence of repentance. Repent, you confess you're a sinner and turn from sin, right? That's, that's the full the full doctrine of repentance. It's habitual, turning away in thought and word and deed and putting sin to death. That's what Job was about. That was his morality. He was not a perfect man, but he was a genuine believer. He was not a hypocrite. In fact, Ezekiel 14, 
the prophet Ezekiel puts Job alongside Noah and Daniel as a man of profound righteousness. Job was a real believer, genuine in his integrity, upright in his relationships, pious in his worship, repentant in daily life. He was a model for our walk with God. Are marks of a genuine believer then and now. That's who you should be or seeking to become as a believer, and so should I. He loved his children. His children loved each other. They're feasting together. They feasted together, and you're going to see they're going to be at a feast together in the oldest brother's house. They feasted together. They obviously had warm, collegial, intimate relationships with one another, celebrating feasts, probably birthday feasts together. But afterward, Job would go and offer burnt offerings for each one of them in case they had sinned and cursed God in their hearts. And it said, Job did this continually. So he loved his family. He wanted them to be godly, just like we as parents want our children to be godly, to walk with the Lord, right? And we talk and talk and talk and talk about that to our kids until it probably sounds like a broken record. But that's the one thing most needful, and Job had it, right? Not only himself walking to God, but also his children, Job did this continually. Now, if we were to adjourn things right now and we were to go home, what we would have here is a really good Hallmark movie, right? You've got Job. What a man. He's good. He worships God. He loves his children. Everything's beautiful. The skies are blue. The birds are singing. He's wealthy. The bank account's full. Boy, I want to be like Job, Right? I want to become a Christian because I'll get all the stuff Job has, right? Just a good Hallmark movie if we left it here. My wife's not here, but she'd be deeply offended at that, no doubt, because it's Hallmark movie season, right? But it's a movie in which the right people doing the right things always come out on top. And there are some who think that is the Christian faith. Those people haven't read the Bible. Those people have not read the story of Job. You won't hear a prosperity gospel sermon from the book of Job. Maybe a verse somewhere isolated from the rest of the book, right? If you're new to Christianity, this ain't the Christian faith. First five verses, right? The movie ended there. We had everybody go home happy. Like happy days, right? But it doesn't stop there. God is setting up Job. Here's what happened to Job. We have these four alternating scenes from heaven on earth and heaven and on earth. And here's the first one. Verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, literally translated thus Satan, also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is none like him on the earth. A blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Oh, but Satan's not buying it, is he? He's seen the Hallmark movie, and he's not impressed. Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and the possessions. his possessions have increased in the land. But... There's a well-placed but, adversative clause for you Hebrew people here. 
Some of that edifies my seminary students here who study the Old Testament. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has. He will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, behold, all that he has is in your hand only. Uh-uh, Satan, not so fast. Only against him, do not stretch out your hand. Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Oh boy. So what we have here is a cabinet meeting in heaven. A meeting that takes place between God and his angels and gathered in council before God, probably receiving their marching orders for the day. Here's, you're going to go out and do this, right? The angels, uh, that's probably what's going on here. And Satan appears among them and likely an, an uninvited guest, seemingly an intruder here. Who is this Satan, does Satan, the Hebrew literally reads, which is more of a title, but it's Satan. This is the serpent of paradise. This is the adversary, the accuser as his name, which is literally the Hebrew title is here. He's the accuser of the brethren. It's that Satan. More on him next week. And God asks him, Where'd you, where'd you come from? Well, from going up and uh, roaming to and from the earth and going up and down on. He's a vagabond, just roaming. He's a lion, Peter tells us, looking for someone to devour. That's what he's doing. That's his job. That is his vocation. We're going to see next week. God has a job even for him, and he does it well. And we better listen to Job, and we better listen to all of Job, and know that he does it well. This vagabond, tempting men. And he says, what about my servant Job? You've seen him likely, right? You've seen him in your travels around earth. You've seen him. A blameless man. He's impressive, right? He turns away from evil. He's full of repentance. He, he, he does family worship every night with his kids. He's, he, he loves me. He knows all about me. He knows everything about me. Loves me, man. It's, it's beautiful. You've seen him? And Satan says, ah, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen him, right? Kind of like the Secretary of War, the President asking the Cabinet, Secretary of War, it's your time to report. Tell us what you've seen. And Satan says, yeah, I've seen him. I've seen this man. I'm not impressed. Because he just knows what side his bread is buttered on. That's why he follows you, right? He's, he, he, he's like a 20-something gold digger model who marries a 90-year-old billionaire. That's Job. That's it. Right? It's like Pete Rose and his 25-year-old wife. That's what he's, he's, you're Pete Rose, right? We know, we know, right, why Job follows you. I'm not impressed. We agree. There's part of us that says, you know, faith surrounded by so much security, surely can't prove a whole lot. Because it's easy to be a Christian when the sun is shining, right? It's easy. So faith with so much security, that doesn't prove a whole lot. The prosperity gospel, it just doesn't prove a lot to me in a real world, right? I'd rather listen to a George Jones song than like believe the prosperity gospel. That's better theology, frankly, right? Because you're going to at least get the problem right if you don't get the solution right. We know it's true. And so here's a wager. He's, uh, Satan says, I'm going to bet you. It's like, you know, the devil went down to Georgia or something like that. The Lord takes the wager and he gives one limitation. He says, you cannot touch his body. Take your bet you're going to regret. He is, but not yet. 
So we'll come to scene two, verses 13 to 22. Now there was a day back on earth. We're in heaven, now we're on earth, okay? Movie scene here. There was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. There came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them, and the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you about it. While he was yet speaking, there came another messenger and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while yet he was still speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword. And I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and your daughters are eating and drinking wine in the oldest brother's house. Behold, a great wind came across the wilderness, struck the four corners of the house, fell on the young people, and they're all dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. He rose, tore his robe, shaved his head, and fell on the ground. Worshipped. See that? He worshipped. He fell on the ground and he didn't say, Why, oh God, why, oh Lord? He's worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Wow. Wow. What we have here, it makes me think of 9-11. For those of you who are alive, I realize I have a young congregation. I have to watch myself here. It was a beautiful day. It was just an ordinary day here on earth, wasn't it? Ordinary day. You have just an ordinary day. You have a day in heaven, you have a day on earth. Ordinary day that becomes Job's personal apocalypse. Satan goes to work behind the scenes and in these four swift blows, Job is reduced from extreme wealth to grinding poverty. Just like that. Normal day, plowing is going on in the fields. The kids, they're together, man, in this great oldest brother's house. He loves them so well. Shepherds are tending their sheep and some thunderstorms building back in the west, but, you know, that's normal, right? Nothing unusual. Nothing to see here. It's an ordinary spring day. And then the doorbell rings, and like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, in four swift blows, Job loses it all. This messenger says, I've come from the field, I'm bearing foul news. The oxen and the donkeys and the servants are plowing. They're all dead. The team's that worked them, they're all dead. Murdered by a marauding band of Sabaeans. And then another one comes for Job. Can't even process that dark message. Another runner hits the doorstep with ill news. The shepherds and the sheep, they're all dead. Been killed by a historically severe, intense lightning storm, apparently. Remember that storm cloud building back in the west. It's here. Immediately there comes another messenger and the Chaldeans. They've raided the camels and 
the servants caring for them, they've killed them all. And you know, compared to what's going to happen next, that's probably fine. It isn't fine. But for me, that would be fine compared to what's going to happen next. And just on the heels of that messenger comes the darkest news of all. You know those clouds? They dropped an F5 tornado and it's hit your children's house. And they're all dead. All ten of them. You're blessed with ten children and they're gone. A tornado has taken out the house and it's taken them out. And the seriousness is punctuated by this, the messenger saying, I alone have escaped to tell you. And there's a comparison. I'm, I'm the only one who's escaped. Imagine having to be the bearer of this bad news. I've had to tell people, you, uh, families that they've lost someone before, I had to do it during a tornado one time in Alabama, and it was one of the hardest things I've ever had to do. They found your son, and they found your grandbaby. No easy way to, to say it. Job, bring this closer to home. Your teenage children, they're driving home from school one day. They're in a car wreck and instantly they're killed. Don't. You make a bad investment one day and your bank account drops from $100,000 to $100. There ain't no getting it back. It's gone. Your house burns down, your entire family's inside it. A family lived near me growing up down in Georgia at 18 kids. One fire, 13 people, gone. The other five were somewhere else. That's what it's like. This is what Job's experiencing. And how did Job respond? Why? Oh, why me, oh Lord? Now he's going to whine later. No, he worships. He said, I came from the womb naked and naked. I'm going to return and the Lord's given, the Lord's taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I could just stop right there. And we've had church. Think about it. Think about it. He worshiped God. He said, God is sovereign. God's the giver of all things. He has the prerogative to give and to take. We say that if we lost all ten of our children in one fell swoop, all of our goods, all of our earthly security, every intimate relationship almost gone. Then God is giving and taking. They're His prerogative, and I will trust Him. That's what He's saying. And we come to scene three. Another cabinet being in heaven. Chapter two, verse one. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to the, present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity. Although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Don't miss the language. You, Satan, incited me against him. Who's ultimately behind this? God said, I am. I'm calling the shots here. To destroy him because he was evil, because he was wicked. No, without cause. Don't miss that. It's very important here. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. 
All that a man has, he will give in exchange for his life. But you stretch out your hand and you touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. Wager number two. And God said, I'll take that bet every time. The Lord said to Satan, behold, he is in your hand. Only spare his life. God's calling the shots here. Who's sovereign? God's calling the shots here. God is. So this second cabinet meeting, Satan still is not buying Job's piety. He's not touched Job's person. He knows that. And Satan knows the human heart. He knows how filled with self-love our hearts are. You can touch all my things. You can touch other people. Yes, and that's going to break me, but you haven't touched me yet. And I love me above all else, and it's fine. It's, let, me, let me add him. So here comes the second wager. God, he'll curse you to your face. God said, that's right, but you can't kill him. Because as Luther put it, he's still God's devil, right? I love the way Spurgeon said this. He said, all the hounds of affliction are muzzled until God sets them free. Who's behind this? We see who's behind this, don't we? God's behind this. We're going to get to that more next two weeks in terms of the theology of it all. So Satan goes out. Scene four. Okay, we're another day, or day in heaven now, another day on earth, the final scene here. Verse, 11, uh, verse um, nine. Sorry, seven. Chapter two. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores, the sole of his, sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took, Job took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then he, his wife said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? He saw as his wife, but not his children. So Mrs. Job, Mrs. Job goes over and says, you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But Job said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? That's a key verse. Back in verse 21 and verse 10. Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not rach is the Hebrew word evil. It means adversity. God is not capable of evil, right? Shall we receive good from the hand of God and not adversity? Shall we be prosperity gospel people until it gets bad, until life hits the fan, and then we want nothing more to do with God? Here's the conclusion to this scene. In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Satan strikes Job again, soars from head to toe, and the scene's pathetic. Probably the only thing he has left is this broken pottery, and he scrapes himself and lances the boils, and, and it's, it's just kind of a disgusting scene, isn't it? Because he's just pathetic. And yet he still holds fast his integrity. Mrs. Job says, you just need to curse God and die. Just kill yourself. Finish the job. Finish the drill. What God's trying to do, you just need to finish it off. Job said, no, you're speaking as one of the foolish women's would speak, shall we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? Adversity. God is a good God. He's not capable of evil or being tempted by evil. We know that from other teaching in Scripture. We're going to talk about means and ends and all that in the few sermons in the next two weeks, but here we see God's behind it, right? But shall we receive good and not adversity? That's what he's saying here. That's literally what the word means. I mean, this is where Isaiah 45, 7, very, something very similar. Isaiah says, I form light, speaking of God, God speaking. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Form light and create darkness, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Who's sovereign over Job and his circumstances and yours? God is. Because either God is sovereign or he is not God. 
I think it's just that simple. Rabbi Kushner, I think he got it wrong. At least Job would say, no, no, this is not what the Bible teaches about this. And, and we have to come to grips with this. I think, and ultimately, this is what's going to give us comfort, is the truth of Scripture. So the author's assessment, I love this, in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So get that assessment. Two times now, Job has not sinned or charged God with the wrongdoing or sinned with his lips. would we do? What would we do in that situation? Let's think about that. When we ponder these lessons from Job, just nine lessons and it's, they're, they're quick. I don't know, we're, we're, we're down, down the road a ways. What do we learn? What do we learn? Well, there's a lot we can learn. This is just, I'm scratching the surface. Remember, 467 sermons or whatever. Okay, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> 23 years. Here's the first lesson. When why do bad things happen to good people, I don't think is the right question. I think a better question to ask would be why do good things happen to bad people? Scripture tells us for all of sin, we read this this morning and quoted this this morning, for all of sin and fallen short of the glory of God. Why does God give me anything good? Why did he send his son to die for me? Do I deserve it? No. No. And there are no good people, theologically speaking. I know we have good neighbors and we do good things for each other. I know. I'm not suggesting that people beside you are evil and they're going to burn your house down or, you know, kill your camels or whatever. I'm not suggesting that. Yes, they're good people. But really, there's no one good apart from Jesus Christ, is there? I think we're asking the wrong question because we come at this with a sense of entitlement. That we're entitled to the first five verses of chapter one. That Hallmark movie. That's what we're entitled to. We're all working toward that. In life, in a fallen world, that's not going to happen. That's not what we deserve. Because what if we got what we deserved? We say, well, God, that's not fair. We love to talk about what's fair. Justice, man, that is the buzzword of all buzzwords. Now, whether you love it or hate it in the church or out of the church, justice. I want justice. Let me tell you something. You don't want justice from God. You want him to give you what's fair? If he gave me what I deserved, I would be in the bottom of hell with Hitler and Nero and all the other notorious sinners throughout the history of the world. Right now, that's where I'd be. Why do good things happen to bad, bad things happen to good people? No, why do good things happen to bad people? And we know the answer, that's because of Jesus Christ, because he's done in us what we could never and would never do for ourselves, right? So I don't come to this with a sense of entitlement that I live in those first five verses, the, the Hallmark movie. We're kind of working toward that, and eventually we'll get there. No, we live in a fallen world. That is not Christianity. That is a false teaching. A lot of bad things happen to good people. Not the best question. Secondly, Job worshiped God. Don't miss this. Job worshiped God out of his suffering and not in spite of his suffering. There's a big difference, a world of difference. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He worshiped God, not in spite of, well, I, this, this stinks and I hate it. And God, I don't get it, but I'm going to, oh, hallelujah anyway. He didn't say that. Instantly. It's the, the, the cry of a Christian, a genuine Christian's heart is piety. was genuine because he said, I'm going to worship you. You've given and you've taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is your prerogative. Give me what I have. As one of my old elders told me years ago, if you don't have it, God is not giving it to you because you don't need it. And it's just prerogative to give and to take away. We 
Would that be our response? If our teenage children were killed on the way home from school today, would we say the Lord gives, the Lord takes away? And of course, I don't think Job is being glib here. Okay, let's, or, I mean, he is, he is, he is suffering here. He's, he's scraping himself. He's, he's sackcloth and ashes. He's adorned in sackcloth and ashes because he's weeping. He's broken. He's crushed. This is not Job saying, well, hallelujah, what well, time's lunch? He's not saying that. No, in, in spite of that, of that, that, that suffering that comes from his heart, that's ripped his heart out and stomped it on the ground, no doubt, he's saying, okay, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Out of his, out of the degradation of his spirit, the brokenness of heart, his weeping, his tears, his, he's saying, okay, I'm going to trust you even though I don't understand. Now, we're going to get a different Job a little later and he's going to complain and the friends come and all that, but no, no, this, this, this is, this is, this is the, the, the first, the false setting of a true Christian. Thirdly, our suffering is ordained by God for his glory, especially on the last day. Can we receive good from the hand of God and not evil? That's a $10 million question, isn't it? Our suffering is designed to do what? Strengthen our faith. First Peter 1, 6 and 7 says, In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, apparently this was evidently necessary for Job, necessary for us to have this story, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that with a purpose that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold, though it perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You may not feel like it's glorifying God now, but in the, in, at the last day, when you stand before the judgment seat of Christ, it will bring him glory. Your suffering will. And by the way, it will make your faith stronger in this world as you learn to trust him more. As you flee not from God, but to God. Do not do what Rabbi Kushner did. He fled from God. We run to God. Job ran to God. Remember James 1, 2 to 4. We preached on this two or three years ago whenever we did James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. You say, what is James? Some kind of sadist? Is he a nut? No, he says, for you know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, perseverance. And let the perseverance have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. When you are tested by God, when your faith is in the fire, it is hardened. You trust him more and you become more like Jesus. You hate sin more and love righteousness more. And you are caused to cling to him because he is all you have. All Job had. Job was flat of his back. He's all he had and he clung to him. And it's for God's glory. We glorify God in that, don't we? Suffering as a believer doesn't mean we won't have doubts or fall into discouragement. I mean, over in chapter 3, Job laments, just one chapter over, listen to Job. He says, after Job opened this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Well, Job's been alone. He's thinking about it. Now he's starting to feel sorry for himself. He cursed the day of his birth. Let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor let light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. And he goes on and on and on. He is discouraged. 
You see, Job, I mean, this Job is very human. He's fallen. He's like us, right? So it's going to lead to discouragement, but that's when we cling to Christ all the more. And we're going to see in the end, he clings to God all the more and comes out. He emerges from the darkness of his discouragement. I want to remind you of this. Job did not have the book of Job. Why is that important? Because we know this is a test. It is only a test. Job didn't know that. We do. For our good, for our encouragement. Fifth, it's easy to be a Christian when the sun is shining. I'm not even going to go over that. It is, right? That's easy. Hallelujah. You know, boy, the, everything's going well. Sixth, God's glory is more important than my comfort. Hello, America. Hello, Americans. <laughs> Hello, middle class Americans. God's glory is more important than my comfort. Oh, oh, you want to learn a lot about your own heart? All you have to do is see how you would respond when God takes it all away. That's it. That's who you are, right? This is who Job, his initial response, that's who he is. We're going to see that in the end. Will you say with Job, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Will you say that? Do you live in verses 121 and 210, or do you live, love God merely for what he has given you? I mean, this temptation is for the poor person too, right? This works, this narrative works for a poor person because he's got to depend totally on God for his daily bread. And what if God doesn't give it? Is he still going to trust God? So see, it's a temptation for all. Not just a rich person's temptation. It's an every person's temptation because we're all sinners and we love ourselves supremely. Talked about that last week, right? About why we don't serve, because we love ourselves. I mean, the question remains do I love the gifts or the giver supremely? And what is the chief end of man? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever, right? That's it. Seven, testing is temporary, and God won't allow you to fail to your eternal ruin. You're going through something, but it's just temporary, and God will not let you be tempted to a point where you leave the faith if you're really in Christ. We're going, to receive that, we're going to see that Job will be restored to the end. His testing was temporary. Job emerged from this crucible of suffering as a hero of the faith. We're, we're talking about Job thousands of years later because he's a hero of the faith, right? We need Job. God employs suffering as kind of like an anvil on which to further strengthen and temper your faith, the faith of his godly man and our faith, the faith of his godly man here. And though Job did fall into discouragement and had many questions about his own suffering, by God's grace, he stood firm until the end, and so will you. How do I know this? Well, we know the end of Job, but also what Jesus said to Peter in Luke 22. Luke 22, 31 to 34, Peter, he tells Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan, here's Satan again, he's asked to sift you as wheat. And he's going to sift you as wheat. He's going to deny Jesus three times, right? But Jesus says this. I prayed for you, and I pray to you that you may not fail, and when you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. Jesus is praying for you right now. When you're in the crucible of suffering, in this white-hot cauldron of suffering, Jesus, just like the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, right? Meshach and Abednego, 
Jesus was in the furnace with the three Hebrew boys, and he's in the furnace with you. And he's praying for you right now, this very morning. If you're persevering in the faith that's called Jesus, is praying for you. He's praying for Job. He said, I will pray that your faith will fail you not, and it won't fail you. Because Jesus always gets his prayers answered. The Son of God, right? Faith. Affliction is not always God's discipline for sin. Suffering and affliction are a product of the fall of Genesis 3. God was testing Job. Our tendency is to think our affliction is God paying us back for some sin we committed like when we were 17. It might be. Not paying us back for that, but some sin are good, but not necessarily. No, no, no. He's testing Job here, right? Testing him. It's not necessarily the case in, in every situation in our lives. I mean, think about Luke 13, 1 to 5, where... Um, Pilate was, Jesus said Pilate was mixing blood with the Galilean sacrifices and then the Tower of Siloam fell tragically like 9-11 almost and 18 people were killed and they said, the people said, Jesus, is this because they were worse sinners than us, than the rest of us? Is that why their, this tower fell on them and, the, and the, the Pilate mixed blood with their sacrifices in worship? And Jesus said, no, no, they weren't worse sinners than you are. But unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Focus on you, he said. Focus on your repentance, your, your, your repentance. But it's not because there were sinners. It, it may not be because of your sin. You, we simply don't know. We can't divine that, can we? Always love it. Like during 9-11, these, you know, some of these very well-known, very famous preachers came out and said, well, this is God's judgment for this sin in America. To which I would say, where do we see that in Scripture? Do you have special revelation for that? And some of them said they did, that God told them this, and don't believe them. Don't buy it. Not for a minute. God hasn't spoken. Maybe that could very well be the case. Is America have become a wicked nation? Oh, absolutely. I don't think we've got nearly what we deserve. 9-11 was bad, but I think we've, <laughs> we got what we deserve. Let's talk about that for a minute. Let's not. Maybe another time. But it's not always discipline for sin. God may just be testing you and, and causing you to trust him more because he's all you have. We can't just divine that. We have to be very, very careful, both for ourselves and in others, weighing in on that. I, I, I'm always, I, I, people ask me that. Do you think this is because of you know, abortion or whatever in America? I don't know. It might be. It very well could be, but I don't know that for sure. And neither does that guy that was on CNN or Fox News or whoever he is. Finally, ninth. Job separates the armchair theologian from the wheelchair theologian. What in the world do you mean by that? Armchair theologian from the wheelchair theologian. Everyone's a theologian, Dr. Sproul said, and he's right. Every one of you is a theologian. question is, are you a good theologian? You have a theology of God, right? You say, well, no, you're trained theologians or people like you. No, 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 no. We're all a theologian. We all know things, say things about God, right? And that's, that's theology, question is, are you an armchair theologian or a wheelchair theologian? Armchair theologians read what Scripture says about suffering, but they are remote from suffering. They say, well, that's terrible. I've never experienced that, but that's awful. Sorry. What's for lunch? Wheelchair theologians, they've lived out their suffering. They know it's true, right? Job is a wheelchair theologian. I want you to be wheelchair theologians. I went to seminary just like some of you have and are. And the temptation is to be an armchair theologian in seminary, right? You get there, you read a couple of books and think, I've got it dead, tap, right. I've got this, got it down. That's what I did. I'm talking about myself here. But I was an armchair theologian. 
And then God put me through a whole lot of stuff. And it wasn't all good. And I chafed under it. And I read Job a lot. And I want to be a wheelchair theologian. I'm in the wheelchair and I'm having to be pushed around. And that's theology. That's, what, that's why this book is so important. This sermon today is not for the theologians to go home and speculate. No, this is for us to be encouraged and strengthened in our faith, right? This is very, very practical. Be a wheelchair theologian. Your theology needs to land on the ground somewhere, whether you're a seminary student or not. And I just say that because I was a seminary student for a long time too, and I know. In the cauldron of suffering. If you're going to ministry, you, boy, you're, you're in for it, let me tell you. God will bring you through it. And Jesus will pray for you, and you're going to come out on the other end a much better, more godly man. I pray. And I pray that I have and will. I don't know. I know God sustained me and kept me, and he will you too. Close. We could talk about this for 423 sermons, 62 sermons. We could talk about this for a long time, couldn't we? And we're going to continue next week. It is highly unlikely. Here's the part where I get you to relax, but not too much. Wheelchair theologians, remember? All of you, every one of you. It's highly unlikely we will ever face the kind of suffering Job did, that level of suffering. Maybe you will. Maybe you have. Unlikely. But it's also naive to suppose that Satan will never attack you. That's just something Pentecostals talk about, Satan. We're going to learn next week, that's not true. That's a lie from the devil. <laughs> hey, I'm just on a can of potted meat. I'm not really a threat to you. He's a far greater threat to you than you know. He wants to sift you as wheat. He wants to steal and kill and destroy you. Seminary student, he doesn't want you in ministry. He wants you out of ministry. He wants to cause you to fall, to disgrace yourself and the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wants your marriage families. He wants your children. He wants them to grow up to hate the faith you're teaching them right now. And he wants your marriage. He wants you to divorce. He wants you to go your separate ways. I doubt, I think it's naive to suppose that God has stopped giving Satan permission to launch attacks on us. Think about that for a minute. Family's had a rough, 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 rough last three or four months. Let me tell you, I feel this right now. I feel like he sort of said, sick them. I'm trying to throw a bone somewhere. <laughs> Let's have a couple of days off from this. We don't get a day off, any days off in the fallen world, do we? Really, it's just life, isn't it? It's just that's the way life is in a fallen world. Satan is a very potent, dangerous, and highly skilled enemy. He's smarter than you are. I know you don't like that, some of you. Some of you have got a lot of degrees by enemy. He's smarter than you are. He knows how to do battle with you. He knows how to fight you. So next week, we'll focus on who he is, what he does, and how we're to go to war with him. It's going to be very practical. From Job 1 and 2 and some of the other places in the Bible. But he continues to attack us, and he will attack you till you, or till Jesus comes back or calls you home. I mean, Scripture makes it abundantly clear. He is at war with us. Satan attacked Job. He attacked the Lord Jesus Christ. He will attack you. Will you cling to Christ? Job is a scary book, isn't it? I hesitate to preach on it. Lisa tells me, all the time, would you quit preaching on affliction and Job and, Job and all this stuff? You know, because we, God makes us live right in the middle of it. Of course, she's kidding. She knows this is exactly what we need. Because here's the good news. 
You ready for the good news? You've suffered a long time under this, so here's the good news. We know the rest of the story, don't we? I mean, what is the story of Job but an echo of Christ, a sufferer who we're going to see was restored in the end. Jesus Christ went into the, all of hell's wrath poured out on him, suffered three days and three nights on the ground. He came out on the third day. We know the rest of the story. He defeated suffering. He defeated death for you. For everyone who will call the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's the promise. And Job gives us sort of a microcosm of that. And Job, I mean, Job believed in the Redeemer. We're going to see that in chapter 19. But he, he lived on the other side of the cross. We live on this side of the cross. And we come into Advent season. Christmas. We begin to celebrate after, I guess, right after Thanksgiving. All the people put up all the lights in our neighborhood. So I guess that means we're in Advent season, Christmas, right? We're going to celebrate that. But I want you to celebrate this. And pray that God would make you a wheelchair theologian who delights in God, who trusts God in the dark times, especially in the dark times, and serves as a light to a watching world. We're getting, going into a season where people are going to be more open to the faith in a sense. They're going to wonder why we celebrate, why, what Christmas is all about. And you've got an opportunity to show them and to tell them. Why it is that when you suffer, you are willing to say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's because of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, his advent. That's why we can say that with Job. Amen. Father, I don't know that I've done this justice. We're way over time, and yet I still feel like I have not yet scratched the surface. But I pray you take this incredible two chapters of your word and plant it deep in our hearts and root us in the ground when the ill winds of affliction blow into our lives and I pray that everyone here within my hearing would be able to stand firm and stand firm because they're trusting you and because you are praying for them God if there be one here today who don't know you and I'm sure that's true they do not know you as Lord and Savior Oh, Lord, have mercy on them. Draw them irresistibly. Draw them effectively to yourself into salvation. They might have this sure and certain hope that Job had that we have in Christ. Pray this in his strong and mighty name, Jesus Christ, our Lord and mediator.